0: Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication.
1: Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we continue our celebration of GovComs and the fact that we have Well over 300 episodes. But what we're doing in this series from the vault, we're reaching back in time to grab a hold of some of those conversations and bring them to you today. And the most amazing thing is each week as you go through these episodes, the relevance uh, remains with so many of them. And today's conversation is with Alice and Claire Collins, who ran Insight Communications, which was uh, a multi-award winning agency. Um, They're a mother-daughter duo who um, co-founded Advocacy Australia. Today, Claire and Alice are still directing Insight Communications, uh, almost 15 years uh, since they uh, began, but they're helping to deliver technology solutions to businesses and organisations. Now, again, this is quite an old episode, eight years old, going back to... 2015 and it was a conversation about content marketing and digital transformation and as i say it was today just as relevant as it was back then but i started by asking claire and alice to tell us a little bit about themselves and also about insight communications
2: uh, we are a mother-daughter team and um, we established insight communications in 2010 um, and then based on the way we've worked in the past, all the different roles that we've played, we've decided that our core business is going to be based on cause, culture, community and health. Uh, we don't do the normal corporate things. We just focus on what's meaningful or what is
1: meaningful to us. And why, and, it, sorry, and why have you decided to, to find that niche? What's driven you to make that decision?
0: I guess it's... Um, Oh, in, in, an innate desire to make a difference, um, to be able to affect change in a positive way that we might not necessarily be able to do because we're not qualified doctors or scientists
2: or environmentalists. It's a way of us being able to contribute to society. And besides that, I think we'd get bored um, if we didn't do something meaningful. Yeah.
1: And, and being a mother-daughter team, how does that work?
2: <laughs> well, that, um, often we go to meetings and people look at our cards and then they look at us and then they look at our cards and we have to tell them up front, yes, we are definitely a mother-daughter team. It works very effectively. I've been working in the um, across the not-for-profit and health department for many years. Um, Alice's background is in arts and culture and advertising and communications um, when I decided to set up Insight, I wanted to do something that was going to give me variation on the things that I was doing so that each, each campaign I did would be new and exciting and challenging, but still give me the fulfilment that I, that I was looking for. Alice was at a point in her career where she was, um, I guess, looking to do something similar because she was a bit over. Um, the advertising arts industry. So she decided to come on board, and that's why we launched Insight. It works very, very well, um, and we've you know had quite a lot of success at it.
0: Yeah. It's um a lot of people say, Oh, how on earth can you work with your mother? I couldn't do it <laughs> or they say, Oh, I couldn't work with my daughter or my son. But for us it, it for us it works really well. We've got a, a shorthand, which we've obviously had since I was born. So um and we both have different strengths and weaknesses which complement each other quite well. Um so mum's skills and my skills work really well hand in
1: hand. Alice, I'm interested in just exactly that transference of skill from from art, design, and advertising, and how you've been able to fold that into what sounds like it was a fairly traditional strategic communications practice.
0: Yeah, well, I did a media arts and production degree at UTS, and I specialised in film production, um, and did a double minor in advertising and journalism and i absolutely loved everything that i was doing but my first job out was working as a publicist on big multi-million dollar musicals um and the first big show that i worked on was priscilla the queen of the desert the war premiere but tragically my boss passed away five days before opening night so it was a bit of a challenge getting the show up and running by myself but i i survived uh, which is the mantra of the of the show, ironically enough, and um, I just went from that into advertising and marketing for the arts, and I really loved what I was doing, but I wanted to do something that was a little bit more meaty, a little bit more meaningful, and I've been helping with mum ever since I was a kid with the different um, jobs that she had at different foundations or different charities. And um, I've always said, oh, I'd love to come and work with you, mum. And mum was always like, no, you go off, do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And my argument was always, you know, fathers and sons have been working together for centuries, so why don't we give it a shot? Because when you do work in the not-for-profit sector, you do have to have the ability to switch hats and with the variety of my background and my skills, we're able to be able to offer a complete service for a lot of the not-for-profit clients when ordinarily they'd have to go to a number of different agencies to be able to provide the skills that we provide, just the two of us.
1: And how, how is communication in relation to public health, which you've clearly identified as your niche, how is it different to publicising a Broadway musical?
0: Look, to be honest... There's actually not a huge amount of difference. Um, it's at, at the end of the day, you're both you're trying to specifically when we're doing the health awareness campaigns for charities, you're trying to sell a feel good experience, knowing that in the case of, uh, for example, ovarian cancer or cystic fibrosis, that you're providing a great opportunity um, to help somebody who has um, an awful disease. When you're trying to sell a ticket to a show, you're trying to sell that feel-good experience to be able to go and forget your troubles and just be entertained for two hours at the theatre. So in that sense, it's it's a similar sell, but with the uh, with communicating um, health awareness campaigns, you you need to have um, a level of sensitivity and empathy towards um, what you're trying to. Um, what messages you're trying to communicate because if you don't, you tend to um, miss the mark. Um, We've had different interns uh, that have have come through us and some of them have been on the ball and just run with it um, and had that level of empathy and understanding. And we've had other ones who didn't quite get it. Um, And the trouble with that is that you can't effectively communicate
2: someone's story unless you have a sensitivity towards them. Is that is that the best Yes, I think that's the best best way to, to um, describe it. The another significant difference between working across the arts, because we do both, um, and health campaigns, is that it's it's really tough um, because you're working very closely with case studies where people need to trust you Um, with their story uh, and and trust you enough to not put them in a position where they're going to be uncomfortable, where they're not going to want to proceed. Uh, So we build up very, very strong relationships. And where the tough part comes in is a lot of the campaigns we've worked on deal with terminal illness. Um, And so we lose friends uh, because we, we become very close to these people. And I can tell you, though, we always say to them at the end of the day, yes, while we're trying to get your story out there and while we're trying to raise awareness, you're, you are the priority. You are the reason we're doing this. So if you find at any point in time you're uncomfortable, we just pull it. That's happened twice in, in since 2010 where we've set up a story, an interview. Um, they've been happy to proceed, they've signed off on everything and then we'll get a call late at night and, you know, saying, look, I'm sorry, I can't do it, not a problem. We just pull
1: the story. Okay. Just, so just in terms of the asbestos awareness campaign, let's go back to the beginning. How did that come about? And I really do want to get into the details of this campaign so people can really feel and understand what some of the major challenges were from the early days from when that, you first won the brief.
2: We were approached by the um, original asbestos education committee um, to see if we'd go and talk to them about it um, and see what our thoughts were. We met with them and we reviewed everything that they were doing. At the time, they'd had a sole operator who was doing a trial of a campaign in Newcastle, um, New South Wales. Now, the trial involved some brochures and a website We reviewed the website and the brochures and we still didn't know anymore. So then we started doing research. We had actually five people working solidly on it for about four months, pulling as much information together as we could. And what we found was that there was no one place where people could could go to find out the answers that they needed about asbestos, how they could manage it safely, who to contact if they found it in their home and so forth. So we recommended that they trash the existing website.
0: Which is which branding was um, completely the wrong message. It was think asbestos. It was like, oh, you're thinking of renovating? Think asbestos. Yep. It was kind of trying to promote it as a great product to use when in actual fact it's
2: it's the reverse. It's the reverse. So what we did was we did a complete rebrand. Uh, we built a website on a shoestring Um And we took it from there. And from that rebrand, what we did was we pulled all these key messages. Now, remembering that a lot of this information that's out there was written by government communicators. And while it might be great from a government perspective, it didn't actually hit the target, which is Mr and Mrs every day. So we had reams and reams of information about what not to do with it and how to do this and how to do that. And the other key element that we did was we
0: facilitated the environment that it was a one-stop shop because the existing site and all the other existing asbestos sites around the country were constantly linking out to other websites so you go to one site to get one piece of information and then you have to go to a second site for more information then to a third and a fourth and a fifth so people were getting um, lost along the way and just giving up because they couldn't find the information that they needed in a clean clear and accessible
1: way. It sounds like it was successful because you communicated in um, the needs of the audience that you're answering the questions that you were looking at it from the audience's point of view as opposed to um, the government health authorities point of view. How did you convince the government health authorities that it was the best thing to do to create content that answered the questions of their audience as opposed to promoted the messages that they felt needed to be communicated?
2: That's a good question. I probably still don't know the answer to that. We just rolled up with our proposal. We said, this is what we think we need to do. These are the other sorts of campaigns that we've done, which were also very successful for National Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. We'd done that twice already. We'd rolled out a number of successful campaigns. And I think by that stage, The uh, plan had been in place for some time and they were just very, very keen to get it out there and make it happen. So they went with it and it worked extremely well. We utilised multiple tools in that initial campaign. We had a very limited budget um, and so, you know, we built the website We leveraged um, media around that website to drive traffic to the website. We created a partnership with the um, national key research body, the Asbestos Diseases Research Institute. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One was because the budget was so small that we needed to work very closely and partner with the charity to be able to effectively, uh, I guess, utilize their charity status. Um, But the most important thing, from my perspective, in any campaign I did at Health Related is I would never do one unless there was a research component to unpin all our key messages. So we worked very closely with the Asbestos Diseases Research Institute, also known as ADRI, and um, we created the campaign that was, I guess, the messages were substantiated by, you know, a key body. And that just made all the difference.
1: And who was the audience that you were seeking uh, to reach and engage and ultimately influence? Who was it that you were trying uh, to make aware about the dangers of asbestos?
0: Every day, Mr and Mrs, um, every day, Um, homeowners um, and householders. So basically anybody who lives in a dwelling which may be constructed before 1987 to just be aware that when renovating or when maintaining their home or even just the simple process of hanging a picture, your family photo, up on the wall to be aware of what may actually be in the wall and throughout the house. So it was a grassroots general um, awareness campaign aimed at at, at the general society we weren't specifically targeting um tradespeople or um other um people who worked in the industry because they were usually trained within within their own um within their own fields um and it was just pro- predominantly homeowners
2: because they're not aware and that was the first year because i mean we and to be honest, we had a month to roll out that campaign from the time we finally had sign-off on our strategy to actually get that campaign out to market. So, it Including was, building the website yeah, and, and creating all the branding and, and all those sorts of things. So it was pretty hell skelter, but we managed to do it. So the following year, based on the success of that campaign, we said, look, you know, the messaging here is strong enough. Um, and the need to get it out there was strong enough that we actually need to do a national campaign. Um, And because it was so successful the first year, they agreed. They found additional budget for us, so that meant that we were able to create a community service television ad as well as a radio commercial um, so we u- utilised those. We also then started looking at what else we could do. So we created multilingual um, brochures and information kits to go out to the various different Australian communities because Australia is very much a multilingual community.
0: And the other uh, the other main area of the target audience um, is... People who live in a lower socioeconomic economic um, area, specifically because a lot of the fibro homes or houses which still contain asbestos are in those lower-income areas. So it was important for us to provide communication tools and devices that enabled the accessibility of that information to those targets.
1: Now, now, what are those? What are the challenges, though, when you're really trying to communicate on a smallish budget to such a broad audience? When you really defining the audience as pretty much everyone with a house built before, you know, 1970. What what are those specific challenges that you were meeting, given that you were constrained by a smallest budget?
2: With this particular campaign, the challenges are ongoing. Initially, the biggest challenge we had was turning the media around because they were still focused on what was happening in the past. And we worked very, very hard. The amount of times I said, look... I can't change the past, but together we can change the future. The only way we can do that is by getting this message out there to different people. So so that was, the, I guess, the turning point in terms of um, j- journalists realising that it was a still an important message that was current today. Um, with the budget constraints that we've had... Um I guess we've just have to, had to be um, clever in the way that we
0: distribute information and the way that we produce information. We never had a budget to print mass amounts of flyers and do mass distributions. So what we do is we develop partnerships with um, key stakeholders that are able to facilitate the distribution of the information to, to to their members or to their customers. So for example, we've done a partnership with Bunnings, we've done partnerships with Master Builders, We've done partnerships with councils. We have a quite an extensive council engagement program which enables um, councils to get all the information that they need to be able
2: to educate their own communities. Yeah, we pre-prepare absolutely everything and we give them access to it and they just download
1: it and off they go and do it for us. And what's your so, advice What's your advice to people on on building those partnerships and those collaborations? What's the best way to get people's confidence and trust in order that they can help to amplify your message
2: well there's a couple of things one is persistence (laughs) definitely (laughs) persistence we have a saying here no is not an option Um, we work very hard to get those relationships underway and the trust i guess comes from the fact that a the message is very very important and we demonstrate to any prospective partner that it's not just our audience; it's their audience. So we share this same target audience, and it's very important for them, for their, for their stakeholders, for their community, for their customers, to know how to safely manage asbestos because it's a killer disease. Um, the average the average life expectancy after diagnosis is around ninety days. That's it. And the other area that we do is with our ambassadors. We've been really um, selective with
0: who we've approached to become an ambassador for the campaign. We wanted high profile and we wanted people who actually had a personal connection to um, asbestos or and or renovating. So our w- wonderful ambassadors donate their time and by having those ambassadors on board, it helps facilitate the partnerships because organisations see that we've got the support of people like Don Burke. John Jarrett, Scott Cam, etc. So it's, it, it just, um, I guess, solidifies why the campaign is so important because it's got the support of these high-flying people in, in, in the industry.
1: But obviously building those, those relationships takes time. You know, you just don't ring up one phone call, hey, Scott Cam, can you come and be a supporter of asbestos awareness? And I know there would have been a lot of detail uh, and a lot of engagement in order to establish that partnership. But I suppose I'd also be interested to know, you know, because you described very clearly um, a high pressured situation, uh, tight deadlines, not a whole lot of money, uh, pressure to get moving, uh, lots of materials to create. How did you set about landing on the objectives on which you were going to measure whether or not this was going to succeed at such a time where there were so many pressures running through?
2: This, because this is intrinsic to what we do, we measure absolutely everything. Um, and it's not just because we want the client to be happy. It's because we need to know that what we're doing is effective. So we measure everything from the outset. It's, just design, it's designed in, this, in the strategy that we create. But we, we always start with a detailed strategy, and that works like our Bible. So once we've got that strategy up and running, we just follow that to the T. Sometimes there's variation because something might fall through or, or, you know, we may not be able to get it over the line the way we want to, but then we've got, you know, tactic B that kicks in. Mm. Um, we, we always have strategies and I think that's what, what makes our campaigns work so effectively.
0: And I think having that, that um, detailed strategy to,
2: which outlines what you want your end objective to be, by just following it, you actually get there. And interestingly enough, this isn't a detailed strategy that's three or four pages long. It can be anywhere between 40 and 50 pages.
1: Wow, that's a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. our usual yeah. strategy is around the 50 pages mark.
2: Yeah, wow. so we look at, we, we break it down into, we look at the core objectives, the goals, um, then we look at how we can achieve those goals, who are going to be key stakeholders, who are going to be our intervening target audiences. Um, and help us get that message to exactly where we want it to be. Um, and and then we break those down and then break those down even more until we know exactly what our plan is and then off we go. Yeah.
1: And in terms of your channel selection, once you've gone through that detailed planning, you you've set the objectives, you've done the research, you understand the audience, you've built some partnerships and collaborations, how do you go about setting out and understanding which are going to be the, the most effective channels to, to reach your, and influence your audience?
2: <clears throat> well, they're usually determining our strategy because we, I'll give you an example. Um, when we were working on the ovarian cancer uh, awareness campaign, the very first time we did it, we actually underwrote <clears throat> the majority of that. Um, we were really passionate about it. One day Alice said to me, "I," you know, she said, look, I'm really passionate about um, breast cancer, but I'm a bit over all the pink. I'd really like to do something about the other female cancers that are out there. Within two days, we had a phone call from Ovarian Cancer Australia saying, would you be interested in doing a campaign for us? So what we did was we created this campaign. Now, we only had a month lead time for that. And that was over the Christmas holidays? Over the Christmas holiday because Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month is February. So we were, you know, pretty tight for time, limited resources, um, limited information. We always do extensive research. That's the other key thing that, that I think we could put down to the successful outcomes is because we do the research first and we know what we're after, we know what we're dealing with and we know how to manage it. So in those sorts of very tight timelines, we tend to work very, very long days and I'm talking out of bed at 4am and finishing at 10pm and this particular morning it was 5am I was sitting in my garden having my coffee and I'm thinking what is the hardest audience I've got to reach how can I find them where are they located in Australia and I thought okay let's talk central Australia Alice Springs. Okay, so who do I know in Alice Springs? Who's a a high-profile person that I might know that lives in Alice Springs? And I thought, well, there's nobody really that I know. And then I thought, but the mayor's high-profile. The mayor is one that people respect and would listen to, and that was the answer. So from that moment on, we targeted every mayor and every council Australian-wide, and it worked like a charm. We had media coverage of mares everywhere, promoting teal ribbons, promoting ovarian cancer. They were having morning teas and afternoon titties to be able to raise awareness of the symptoms of ovarian cancer because there was no other diagnostic tool available. So so that's sort of what we do, I guess, when we when we start thinking about audiences, we start thinking about the most extreme circumstance and how we can reach them. And then from that comes the answer.
1: Yeah, sounds great. It's a, you know, very clever, very segmented, very thoughtful and a great way to really, as you say, activate those multiple media touch points. But I'd be interested in your views on how have you noticed the change or the influence of media? At a time of digital disruption and the rise of social media and the influence of social media, when you're building your campaigns these days, how do you assess traditional media as against the the new platforms that are available to people?
0: Look, I think it's essential that you have a bit of everything because... Focusing on one particular area is never enough. You can't just do PR. You can't just do marketing. You can't just do advertising. You can't just do social media. Um, because um, in society, we are susceptible to so many different platforms in a, in our day-to-day activities, in the workplace, in our homes, um, just travelling around. We don't tend to pick up on a message if we just see it once. So it's important that your message is across all the various platforms to be able to get the maximum um, ability to
2: sink into um, into the psyche of, of your target. I'll give you an idea. Um, this is when we structure a campaign, we try and think of how many ways we can reach somebody and we utilise absolutely everything in our fingertips. So, for example, what we, it's what we call the day in the life of a campaign. So, for example... Um, somebody's in bed in the morning, their alarm goes off, the news is on, the first thing they hear is a news grab from one of the campaign ambassadors. Okay, so then they go down to have breakfast and then they hear the ad, the radio ad on the radio while they're putting the kettle on. Next thing you know, after they've had their shower, they just sit down and have their breakfast in front of the television and on the morning show or or the breakfast show, they see another ambassador interviewed or um, a person that's experiencing the illness themselves so a case study so then they might decide okay so we've got to take little johnny off to school so they'll drop johnny at school and when they take johnny into school they'll see that um, they'll receive a newsletter to say well did you remember to bring you know your gold coin because today is a fundraiser for blah 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 blah." Um, then they'll jump um, back in the car and they'll head to work. And while they're sat at the lights, they'll see a bus shelter with a with a, with a poster that says this is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. So then they get to the office and then by the time they get to the office, we've already reached them multiple times before the day has even begun. Mm. So they sit down at their computer and the first thing that happens is um, they get an email from a colleague that has a banner in the bottom of the of the email in the email signature saying today is asbestos awareness day, so we've reached them at that point.
0: They log onto their Facebook and they see people sharing stories, um, promoting the awareness message, or they see someone tweeting um, with the hashtag that we've created. So it's it's a very holistic approach, so that throughout the day or the week campaign they're touched multiple times with the, with the various um, modes of communication.
1: Given though it is now such a busy, crowded space for messages to cut through, what's, the, what's a piece of advice that you would give people um, to ensure that they are successful in getting their message through?
0: Keep it simple, stupid, essentially. Um, the more complex, the more detailed you will, we, we tend to find the message gets lost or, and not heard. And to make it accessible in a way that people will remember your key messages of what you're trying to say. So, have a very, very distinct visual, have a very distinct um, phrase or um, message, which can be translated um, through the audio ads, through the radio, uh, through the um, TVCs, um, and when people are being interviewed for the key messages. Yes. And
2: I think the other thing that is, is you've got to think outside the square. And I know it's a very corny, old-fashioned thing to say, but you do. You have to be creative. You have to think that how am I going to reach that person on the other side of the shopping centre with my message just before they pick up their hammer and or their drill and drill a hole in a wall that might end up killing them. So by being creative, you, 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 you come up with different tools and techniques that you can utilise to actually reach them
1: i really love it just going back to that idea about the the mayor in alice springs and, and the the way that you are, you put yourself in the most difficult way uh, imaginable set yourself a great challenge to try to find that solution in a in a very complex difficult place and that that spurned that really imaginative idea so that sounds like a great technique that people could use
0: Oh, it's a, it's a fabulous technique um, and it's one which we've used very effectively with the asbestos campaign as well. We've created complete online um, digitally accessible um, kits for councils to download to be able to create their own um, asbestos awareness campaign within their communities and they just love it. We provide everything from the presentations down to images to graphs to pull-up banners, the whole Everything is available to them all they need to do is register and the feedback that we've had from the councils around the country We've got over 70% of of councils around around the country who are actively involved in the campaign that we're doing for asbestos awareness and considering that there's 565 of them. We're pretty stoked to have almost
2: 400. So um, Yeah, yeah, and that's because we it's and it's hard work because you know, you sort of going through the local government angle and and in a country as big as Australia, you're working in different time zones in the summer. Um, You're working with very, very small community councils in rural, regional areas, very remote areas. Um, And so the idea is to make it easy for them to participate. Sometimes it's a bit of a hard sell, but... Like I said, no is not an option. That's our, our mantra. So mm-hmm. we just work very hard because their people in their community is very important to us even though we don't know them.
0: Yeah, and we we utilise our ambassadors as well in, in approaching. When we go out to mayor's, um, and councils, we have multiple approaches. We send them the initial email invitation. We send them a hard copy invitation, and then our ambassador then follows up with a personal email to the mayor. And that's how we're able to get the traction with with
2: the uh, registration. So it's not just a matter of bringing up a council and saying, "Hey, come on board." It is very de- it's a very detailed process. And that very time through. consuming. But one of the things we've created with for a number of our campaigns, and this is nothing new, really, for any Lots of charities do this, like Australia's Biggest Morning Tea and those sorts of things. They do it as a fundraiser, which I think is great because we need that injection of funds into research for multiple diseases and conditions. However... What we do is we use them as a means of communication. So for the asbestos campaign, we created um, the Blue Lamington Drive. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that is because asbestos is essentially a pretty dirty word. Um, We all know the history of it. It's it's not pleasant. We know the outcomes when people are exposed to it unnecessarily. So what we're trying to do is break down that that objective barrier that people have against something that they, they may not understand. Um, And to do that, we use this um, communication tool which is a forum. So we get people in a room, we provide them with the presentation that they can show the different groups and some councils show it to staff, some councils show it to community, some councils show it to everybody Um, and they invite them on board. And we have this, this, I guess, this humorous component which takes the edge off the seriousness of the message which allows us to cut on in there and deliver our serious message, and that is the fact that it's a blue lamington. And the reason why we chose
0: a blue lamington was because a lamington is quintessentially Australian um, but the colours of a lamington, once you add the blue on, the blue to the coconut, are the three main colours of asbestos, blue, brown and white. And the coconut itself are fibrous, is, is fibrous and um, that's what asbestos is. Asbestos is a fibre. So it's kind of a quirky way of being able to break down something that's so people tend to put up the barriers as soon as you say asbestos. I mean, that is one of the problems that we have with getting organisations on board to participate. They hear the word asbestos and the shutters kind of come crashing down and then we've got to work our way for them to roll them back up and be um, receptive to our offer and then they come on board once we explain it to them. Yeah.
2: but So, so what we do is we have these different groups throughout the community all through Australia holding these relaxed kind of communication forums where people come along, it's a bit of fun, but we're actually getting a serious message across to them at the same time and it works very effectively. Another key uh, uh, communication tool that we've we've utilised is Betty. Um, I don't know how much you heard about Betty, but she's quite famous internationally as well. Uh, we wanted to do something that was an experiential marketing tool and How this idea was created, again, it's sort of thinking outside the square, we needed to do a media launch um, of the campaign, the second year running, and we thought, how can we do this? And I thought, okay, let's get a a movable house, stick it on the back of a truck, bring it into the, the heart of Martin Place and do a media call around that where we can point out where all the dangers might be found. And then the next thought I had was, yes but we might kill somebody with that if there's asbestos in that house so okay what's the next step let's make a house let's make a house that's on wheels that can move around from community to community demonstrating exactly where asbestos might be found in a home hence we built betty um and betty's like this little house on wheels um she's done more than twenty-five thousand kilometers since she launched two years ago this year was her first trip interstate where she's gone to melbourne And all around regional Victoria. Regional Victoria and Riverina, New South Wales, which was one area in New South Wales that she hadn't toured before. We use um, highly trained volunteers, uh, Jeff and Karen, who take Betty out there and talk to people and pass out the information and people are amazed where they might find asbestos in their home. So, So Betty has been a very useful tool and, again, it was created out of Yeah, an initial concept to demonstrate a house, how we're going to do that and how we're going to get community involved.
0: And your question earlier about how beneficial is my background in the arts to my health awareness campaigns. We've spoken with builders about how we go about creating a, a portable house and they literally had no idea. So I used my contacts in the arts industry and we got a set designer to create it because because budget was an issue, um, size and scale was an issue. And so we got this brilliant set designer, Nick Catron, to create and and, um, and build it. And um, Betty's just been, has gone gangbusters. Um, we're actually talking with the UK now about creating Betty's and uh, an asbestos awareness campaign for over there.
1: A very big thanks there to Alice and Claire. And uh, what charming ladies. Uh, and very grateful to them for giving up some of their time uh, to be able to share that with you uh, and with us on the GovComs podcast and another great episode from The Vault. Uh, As always, uh, a rating and a review does help us to be found. So if you do have time, uh, you could just jump over there now, give us a rating. It does help us to be found. Anyway, we'll be back in two weeks' time. I'm David Pembroke, and it's bye for now.
0: You've been listening to the GovCom's podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.